Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Yo, check this out. This is Chuck D. Keep it locked. You are tuned into the library. The Lies of Berry with Tim Inico right here, right now. guest appears that have done pretty much everything in the music industry, from being the first rapper signed to Motown Records, to production, to A&R, to radio host, and much more. His music credits include Ice Cube, Nas, Deborah Cox, L.O. Cool J.J., um, R. Kelly, Nice and Smooth, Mary J. Podge, Foxy Brown, and many more. He's Rich Nice, and I want to welcome him to the library to mine and Cal. Yeah, you left out Michael Jackson, but that's cool. <laughs> I have a question about Michael Jackson later. And okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gotta keep people in suspense. True, true. Sorry, I, I blew. The, I, sorry, guys, I blew the surprise. Sorry. So, from the beginning, um, you know, as a kid, you um, was listening to an interview and you talked about how your dad, uh, he was a he was an early promoter, and he did groups like Milo and the Kings and other groups. And your uncle also had a band. How did their, how did they, and what you were surrounded by? How did that influence help influence your love for music? Well, you know, I think as a kid. It, it, you become very influential by your immediate surroundings, good, bad, or indifferent. And my immediate surroundings on one side was bands and musicians and, and instruments. And then my influence on the other side was the business of booking the bands. So it was just kind of like all day I'd be with the musicians and then all night I'd hear my dad talking about Oh, that's a horrible deal. We're not doing that. <laughs> and I'm just like, I thought that was a pretty good deal. I took that deal. But dad's like, no, nah, that's a slavery deal. You're, you're basically working for free. We're not. No, no. And I was like, kind of like my first 101 to understanding your worth came from my dad. So um, major influence on me from the beginning. That's what even led me up to wanting to own my own production company as I moved forward and not wanting to be signed to someone else's production company or to someone else's situation. It was like, let's have our own. The band and the band and the bands and groups that your dad promoted weren't or didn't, from what I've read, doesn't seem like they were rap groups. No, I mean, my dad also worked with Al Heyman, and what, like, at that time, you know, Al Heyman wasn't the biggest promoter as he is now, but he was still a big promoter at that time, and, you know, a, a lot of um, 
a lot of big time bands, you know, uh, Caribbean and non-Caribbean. So how did you what, what so what drew you then to hip hop culture and rap music? What was that like? What was your first experience that said, all right, this is not necessarily what my dad's doing and not the bands he's doing, but this is what this is what speaks to me. We lived on Cedar Avenue, 2254 Cedar Avenue. And conveniently enough, that's the block where Cool Herc did these parties. I was a very, very, very young kid, and my parents owned a restaurant. I grew up in the restaurant business. So while my parents were downtown in Harlem, actually here on 116th Street at the restaurant, I was in the Bronx with my sister and my older sister and my grandmother who watched us. And, you know, we would, my sister would go outside and take your little brother with you and go out. And then, you know, she would go upstairs. It's time to go up when the street lights come on. But that's when they started the park jams. And it was called Back Cedar. You had to walk, like, all the way back to the end part of Cedar Avenue. And that's where Cedar Park was. And as a little kid, I was very mischievous. I was a bad kid, I can honestly say. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fantastic adult, but I was a bad kid. And um, I would, you know, I'm supposed to be upstairs, and I'm not upstairs. I'm in the park talking about, you dip, dip, dive, and so socialize. I mean, I'm watching, of course. I'm too little to, you know. Right. And um, that was kind of like the beginning of it. You know, my very, very first time, there was a pool, a pool back there, a swimming pool, called Roberto Clemente State Park. And we would all go there to swim, like all of us. I mean, I say all of us, I mean 15, 20 of us from the neighborhood. And we would all walk back Cedar to go to Roberto Clemente State Park. One day leaving Roberto Clemente State Park, coming back see, coming back to the neighborhood, we see Cool Herc. And, well, at this time, we didn't even know it was Cool Herc. We see a group of people setting up equipment in Cedar Park. And it's like, yo, 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 plug that in, plug that in. I grabbed a cord and I plug it in. Later, it's like, yo, that's Herc and da 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 I don't know who. I'm a little kid. I have no idea to find out that this is like they're doing park jams here. It's like it's a party. So we're like, okay, well, we coming back. We coming back. And this is like the older kids are talking. And I'm like, I know if I'm going to get a beating if I come back. So I'm trying to arrange how I could go hang out at my, my homie's house and spend the night over his house because his mother worked late at night. He's a sing- single parent. She's a single parent. So once she gone... That's it. (laughs) We Gucci. So I'm like, okay, here we go. Back Cedar. And it's blowing my mind because I had never, first of all, I've never heard music that loud ever in my life. That was like the loudest I'd ever heard music before. And it was just kind of like, it blew my mind because we're in a park and the speakers are, you know, giant sized speakers. And I'm hearing beats and music that I never heard before. And it's really blowing my mind and I'm like that gotta be the coolest thing I've ever seen at this age in my life so here we go I want to come back again and again and again and then the neighborhood kids we started picking it up and started doing it and you know just so you can understand the scope of the neighborhood I live on the bottom of the hill on Cedar Avenue Kid Capri lives on the top of the hill on Sedgwick Avenue but more west on Sedgwick Avenue Scott LaRock, God bless the dead, lives the other direction. Who else is from the neighborhood at the time? I mean, it's a bunch of us that live in this neighborhood that are embracing this culture at very young, at a very young age. So it was very, it was very impressionable on us. Did you know? I mean, it seems like you have this, like you said, you had this music. This not just music mentality, but a business mentality from a very young age because your dad. Um, was there something about it 
to you at the, uh, you might not remember that said, all right, this is going to last a long time. What's happening now, from what I understand about maybe music business or what I understand about sound, this could be something that does last a long time. Or was it not even thinking about that? Mm, nah, it was more fun and being, just having fun. And, you know, one thing about me from a young age, I always loved girls. So it was always like girls and it's girls and it's more girls and it's other girls than I've never seen before. And it's some of the girls from the pool because, like I said, we go to the pool first. So, you know, you go to the pool 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock and I'm the kid that stays in the pool until I get pruny. I'm that kid. I'm the kid that stays in the pool the entire day. I come out ashy. I'm my pruny. Just like, yo, what did you do? Did you just like soak all day? It's like, I was in, I was, I'm at the pool. So, so, so when I got a chance to really be free, that was my freedom. That was my life. Because outside of that, also, remember, I'm West Indian. So it's schoolwork. It's chores. It's it's. A, I have a regimen at the house. It's not just hang out, be cool. It's like this was my escapism, so to speak. So when I got there, I wasn't thinking about books or money or business or anything. I was just like in the moment, truly, truly in the moment. Uh, you've uh, you've described yourself in past interviews as a real Bronx b boy who wrote graph, who danced, who DJ'd, and who rhymed. Um, couple of things can you briefly talk about the importance of each of these elements to you but also what was the first element that you tried and and what like what order did you try all these elements the original element from my personal perspective and some people may disagree with me but i would debate them on any format is graffiti (laughs) graffiti is first and graffiti to me was first because it marked the territory of where you went and and who you saw so for me, graffiti was first. I started off with graffiti. I started off writing in the laundromats because that was the extent of my route. My route was go wash your dirty clothes. All right, well, here we go. So the neighborhood laundromat was tiny. Couldn't write but on so much because it was tiny. So I started going to other neighborhood laundromats. I started writing on their machines. And until I got caught writing on the machine, and I got caught because the name I was writing was so long. It was just like, yo, this name is too long. What is wrong with you? No one writes this long graffiti name. Are you crazy? And I remember the name. It was Golden Sword. (laughs) Go ahead, ask me. Go ahead, ask me. Go ahead. How'd you come up with that? (laughs) (laughs) There's not one person that I've told that name to that didn't ask me that. Because... As a kid, I was fascinated with the martial arts. I have an uncle, well, he's passed on now, um, Butchie, um, like a super high fifth-degree black belt. He could stand up on his, he was like 6'3". He could stand on his, like put it like a handstand on these two fingers like this with both hands. Wow. Uh, a handstand, like straight up, but like that. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. I can't even do a handstand. So How about that? Yeah, no. So... <laughs> Seeing that as a kid, I was just like, I was engulfed into the martial arts. And he had this thing with Aikido, with weapons. And when I went to his house, he had all these swords. And the one on the wall, the biggest one, was a golden sword. And he would not let me touch it. Of course, you know, (laughs) me being the bad kid that I was, it didn't take long for me to figure out how to. Right. But that's how I got that name. And it's funny because I got caught by the, the lady, the Spanish lady who was mining the, the store, the, 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 um, the laundromat. She didn't speak any English. Well, let me say, her English was really bad. And 
she just started cursing me out in Spanish, like all kind of pentejo, maricón, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I guess that means I'm in trouble. <laughs> and so I just grabbed my clothes out the washing machine, wet, like still running washing machine, into a plastic bag and ran out the laundromat. And after that, I said, okay, I, I can't write Golden, Golden Sword anymore. I have to change the name. And I changed the name. And then when did you try dance? Uh, so, well, from, from Golden Sword, from writing graffiti, it instantly went to DJing because um, that's what we saw. When I saw Cool Herc and the original Clark Kent and JC and all these guys DJing, it blew my mind. Like, did, you, did you stop? I'm sorry. Did you stop Graph? No, totally, I continued. Okay. Graph is something, honestly, if you're from the Bronx, you never really stop. I still write till today. Like, like I keep a marker with me. I move around, and it, it, it's it's something that once it's in your blood, it's just kind of in your blood. You, you just kind of because you're doing it for you. Right. The most important thing about graffiti that people don't realize is that I'm not doing it for anyone else. We don't do it for anyone else. We do graffiti for ourselves. I got up. I I'm up. I'm up. I'm up. I'm, I'm part of the stars of the two and five. I'm down with the real guys. I'm up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and that's kind of why we do it and did it. Um, but from there, it was into the DJing. And we had the makeshift DJ set up. One guy had a turntable, a house turntable, not a real technique, a house turntable. Another guy had another house turntable, you know, um, makeshift amp, makeshift speakers, wires. The, head, the, the microphone was a headphone that we slipped into the jack that we... All kind of, you know, uh, rigged equipment. And that was how we first started DJing. Um, um, some older guys, Jeff Moultrie is one of the guys that from the neighborhood that really was instrumental in starting us all in DJing because Jeff was older. Jeff was like more in Cool Herc's demo. And like, so, so Jeff would like watch us, you know what I mean? Like, over, like almost babysit us as the big homie, so to, so to speak. And from being around him, watching, and, you know, he's the first dude that I seen that I hung out with that actually had hard-bottom shoes. I was like, what the hell are those? And he started laughing. He said, these, these big boy shoes. I was like, I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know nothing about hard-bottom shoes. Like, you know, or we call them church shoes. That was it. You know, but he had hard-bottom casual shoes. It wasn't like, they weren't church shoes. They were casual <laughs> shoes. It was like, what's that? Like, we didn't even... Couldn't even comprehend it, and he was going to a DJ gig, and we were just like, "We coming?" It's like, "Nah, y'all too young, y'all can't get in." We're like, "What do you mean we can't get in?" It's like, "You too young, you can't get in." And so the DJ part for us was through through him introducing us to that, and we just kind of kept on and saw what they were doing back Cedar, and it just kind of kind of uh, learned and observed from that. My next question is about choosing an element, which I don't think you you've officially doesn't sound like you officially done like in terms of like there's not one you're still doing graph you still but but rhyming is how i think a lot of people are introduced about you to you the world probably met me cohesively as an mc yeah so where did that what 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 was it about rhyming that you wanted to why did you want to go into rhyming i'll be honest with you um from djing Oddly enough, we all were kind of loosely like b-boys from graffiti. After graffiti, it was like a lot of a lot of people who wrote graffiti were b-boys, and it's weird because dancing and DJing kind of went 
I don't want to say hand in hand, but if you went to the jam, you had to dance. Right. There was no wallflower shenanigans. Like that was corny. If you went to the jam and didn't dance, that was corny. So when it came time to rhyme, really for me, it was because it was so many DJs and nobody really wanted to rhyme because you had to be accurate on that microphone. You couldn't get on that microphone and be whack or playing around. So you figure in my little crew, it was like eight or nine DJs. So everybody was waiting their turn. And because you didn't have an extensive record collection at the time, you kind of would have the one or two doubles that you like to cut. So like I might have Apache, Frisco, Disco, and dance to the drummer's beat but i only got one copy i don't have doubles so i got one copy and you'll have the other copy and then we'll figure out okay well if you let me use your apache i'll let you use my frisco disco and that's kind of how it you know and i kind of got tired of that and i was like man give me the microphone which was basically the headphones on one side it's yeah 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 check it out job job yeah 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 come on come on it's the show shot 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 and i start doing my own echo my own because that's what i heard from and that's how my whole mc started my whole mc started with me just kind of party rocking i didn't really have any rhymes I, I didn't really have any rhymes to be honest it was just a lot of boasting and vibrato and how you know how we the best and we good and we this and we that and you know see the av boys and you know blah 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 and you know big up see the av crew 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 yeah 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 and that's all because of watching cool hurt cool hurt had that echo chamber he had that echo cool hurt 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 and the hurt the Lord, 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 Lord. so watching that as a kid majorly impressionable i, I saw women with shirts on that said property of the herculoids i had never seen anything like that in my life right. i saw i had a gray t-shirt that said property of the raiders talking about the football team and it was right. like i get it that's what they you know they had those shirts for the players i had never seen property of a, a like a person or, or a crew it right. was the weirdest thing so very very impressionable and that's kind of what pushed me into that MC mode. And then I kind of start moving around the neighborhood. And at the beginning, you know, you, you, I was a little shy with it because I really wasn't sure if I was good or not. I mean, I was good to my homies in the, in the basement, but we in the basement. Right. So as, as time went on. I started developing a little more, developing more, going up to Kingsbridge, the Kid Capri area, going cross over the university, going further over to Webster. And back then, the Bronx was dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous now, but back then, you know, two blocks from where you live, you could have a problem. Right. Two blocks from where you live, you could have a problem. So it, it was a lot to say, I'm an I'm, I'm, I'm MC, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm a B-boy, and I'm on that microphone. So when did you... As an MC, when did you have to realize you, when, when did you have to start writing songs? You know what it was? It was kind of like, it wasn't songs, it was rhymes. It was rhymes first. I started realizing that, I started watching the guys who got on the mic and, and how long they would be on the mic. Because my thing was, I could probably give you two or three records of party stuff. 
And after that, it was like, all right, well, let me let the DJ do his thing because I ain't really got nothing else to say right now. <laughs> and then, but I was a very good improviser. So it would be like, I was the kind of guy that would like rock a whole lot of, oh, the ladies wearing white. Come on, all oh, the ladies wearing white. You know, and I would just kind of play on what was in the crowd. You know, all the girls with the hair braid. Hey, all the girls with, you know, kind of, yeah. you know. Um, but it was very primitive. It, even what I'm saying is way more developed than what it was at the time. Very, very skeleton feeling my way around because, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of I didn't have a lot to go from, you know, because my my first of all, I was still very young, so I, I couldn't travel. But so far and I, I didn't really have that much freedom to kind of venture out as far as I would like. So. That's kind of what kept me in that realm. I said, okay, well, you got to write rhymes. And then this one kid, my man Jackson. Actually, I'm still friends with Jackson till this day. Jackson lived on the hill of Sedgwick. And Jackson was friends with a guy who was more like a... He was a DJ, but he wasn't really a DJ. I mean, he DJed, but he was more like a party kind of promoter kind of guy. And he was like, I'm going to put you on some shows to come through. Let me see what you got. And I said, well, started giving him my little spiel. And he straight up was like, yeah, that's cool. But what else you got? And I was like, well, you know, that's, not, that's my best shit. Why, why? <laughs> he was like, oh, all right, well, you know, there's a kid up here. There's a dude up here named Kid Capri. And uh, he, he's, throwing, he's doing that times 10. And I was like, I know Kid Capri. Like, no, no, I said, I know Capri. Actually, I know him as Pooch. I said, I know Pooch. What, what, what you trying to say? And he was like, I'm saying that if you're trying to be on the on the real level, you got to come better. And I was just like, wow. Because I had three records. I only had three records of material. <laughs> After three records, I was done. So I said, okay. So I just started, I kind of got quiet. And I just kind of started standing in the crowd. And now I would walk back seat alone as opposed to with my whole crew or with one or two people. Because now I'm not going to party. I'm not going to, to dance I'm standing right by the ropes, and I'm watching like it's like I'm in I'm in school now, and I'm watching everything, and I'm watching how Herc put his records on, and I'm watching how how JC spins cuts fast, and I'm watching you know uh, uh, everybody Coke Rock. I'm watching every anyone who touches anyone who's behind that rope. I'm watching like my life depended on it, and it just kind of soaked in my brain and soaked in my brain, and I said okay. And I started writing things and more things and cool stuff. And, you know, honestly, everybody was kind of influenced by everybody. Right. So you would hear kind of like a little bit of what he did and what I did, a little bit of what I did and what he did from the neighborhood. But there were guys who were older than us who were still kind of like the staples of it. And it was like, all right. But it officially had me in gear to where like, no, nah, this, is, this is what I do. This is what I do. Like I write, I, I write rhymes. I'm, I'm, I'm a b boy. Like, you know. And I wasn't saying no one was saying hip hop. You would say I'm a b boy. That's what you would say. You wouldn't say yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hip hop. Or yeah, yeah. I, I, I rock with hip hop. Or you know, it was I, I'm going to the jam. I'm going to the jam. That's what he was going. He wasn't going to the party. He was going to the jam, the park jam. And or they would say they rocking in the park. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They rocking in the park. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You be rocking. You be rocking. Yeah, I be rocking. Wasn't really do you rhyme. No one asked you do you rhyme. No one really asked you do you MC or do you rap. It was like, hey, you be rocking, you be rocking, yeah, I be rocking, I be rocking. You know what I'm saying? Or 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 um, do you rock the crowd? You be rocking the crowd. You can rock the crowd. Can you rock the crowd? Hell yeah, I can rock the crowd. All right, give him the mic. Let's see if he can rock the crowd. Because no one was saying these long rhymes and 
patterns. It, it, right. That was this is way way before that. Way before that. So when was the first time you heard about industry folk hearing about you? Oh, industry folk for me was probably my cousin Dwayne Taylor. God bless the dead. Uh, Dwayne was a publicist. This is some years later. And Dwayne um, was the college rep for CBS Columbia Records. And his first project was Beastie Boys, Licensed to Ill. And he did this crazy college party promo with them. And they loved him. And it was crazy because it was just like, you know, you got to fight. Bang, bang, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think... That was even later. Earlier, it was it was that joint first, and I, I still got all those original vinyls that he, the original promo vinyls that he gave me from that from that time. And prior to that, before that, I should say, was um, Sugar Hill Records. Um, Pumpkin, the drummer, God bless the dead. I was in a group out of Eden Wall Projects called the Devious Brothers. Me. MC D-Rock, Daryl D, Jazzy D. Um, and Pumpkin was the, lived in the neighborhood and was the drummer for Sugar Hill. And, and Joy Records and a bunch of... And Pumpkin was like, you young dudes is dope. I'm going to set y'all up with a meeting with Sylvia. And Sylvia wanted to sign us. I was probably in the seventh grade at the time. And my god brother... I don't know how, to, how he had a messenger job, but he had a messenger job... And he met Spoonie G. And he told Spoonie, yeah, we got a meeting with Sylvia. We about to um, sign to Sugar Hill. And he said, why would you do that? And he was like, why are you signing? He says, I'm about to leave. I'm not staying there. Not for me. If you young brothers know what I know, you wouldn't do it. Take your time. You're young. You ain't, trust me. Don't do it. And... Everybody else wanted to still do the deal. I was the only one who was like, you didn't just hear what Spoonie G said? He said, don't do it. What are you talking about? He's leaving. Like, why would we do it? And oddly enough, even though I was a hard-headed kid, if I thought you were knowledgeable in what you did, I would listen. And I, I was a Spoonie G. I'm still a Spoonie G fan. And I just felt like he was the creme de la creme. And I said, I got to listen to Spoonie. So the day we were supposed to sign the contract, I didn't show up. But Sylvia didn't want half the group. She wanted the whole group. So it was like, because it was, we, were, we were minors, so you had to do all that paperwork and all that. So she's like, I can't do it with half of you. I got to do it with all of you. Everybody was mad at me because I didn't show up. And I was like, nah. So I told my cousin Dwayne. Dwayne said, I have some people for you to talk to. And he introduced me to some people, and it turned out to be at Critique Atlantic Records. And I ended up writing songs in the seventh grade for Critique Atlantic Records. That's, that was my first professional gig in the music business, was writing songs for Critique Atlantic Records. I want to go back. What, were you, what did your parents think of all this when this was... They had no idea what was going on, because I didn't talk about it. I just was in my room playing music loud, and it's just like, eh, that's the... You know, the kid doing what the kids do, you know. It wasn't like I was around the house talking about, I'm going to have a rap career. Because right. there was no rap business. There was right. no real, even at that time, Sugar Hill Records, even though there were songs on the radio, it was so primitive to the mass. And I remember, I'm Caribbean. So, my dad, what foolishness that, go from here with that thing. 
he's not it's not even on his radar because it, it really wasn't it really wasn't that popular. We're still talking about maybe 50 people who do hip hop at this time. Maybe 50. You know what I'm saying? Maybe 50 like professionally. So it wasn't on anyone's radar. We're talking about Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill Records was the biggest rap label at the biggest rap label at the time. No one's, you know, it wasn't it wasn't popular. So 1990. But fast forward a little bit. You were the first rapper signed to Motown Records. How did this partnership begin? And then why did you decide to sign with them? I used to cut high school, Park West High School. Shout to Park West High School and all my grimies from then. Brooklyn stand up. <laughs> we had so much fun. So I would cut high school. And cause my high school was in Times Square. And we would go to... We would first of all we would pool our money together. It would be probably, probably about eight of us. We would all put our little money together to get three hours of studio time, and we would cut school, run from the truant officers, jump fences, and all that. And back then it was two inch tapes. It wasn't digital. It was two inch tapes. And so, the the main thing was to get the tape to the studio. If you made it, you made it. Because if you didn't get there, you would get there eventually. But the t- it was more important that the tape was there. So we took turns taking the tape. So, But if you got caught by the truant officers, the tape would never make it. So we would literally be like almost like a football, a rugby game almost, of running with this tape and handing the tape off. It was like, I'm not going to make it. I don't think I can make it. And I would hand the tape off to someone else and then jump the fence and hide from the truant officers and then get my breath and then come right. out and run. And um, that was like the beginning of my demo stages, high school style. And at some point... My other friends, it was just fun because they wanted to cut school and have some place they could smoke weed and no one would stress them because we were high school students. And after a while, it was just kind of like, eh, I'm tired of running. I don't want to do it. And some guys want to graduate. Some guys want to. Me and one other dude, my man Sean Lisbon, God bless the dead. Sean Lisbon was like, yo, let's go to the studio. Let's keep it going. And there's a picture of me and him on the roof of our high school. With the money for the studio, you could see it in our pockets. Our pockets, were, we paid in cash. Our pockets were, like, swollen with money, and we looked like drug dealers. It was just, like, the funniest picture ever. <laughs> you see us on the roof of our high school, and we just kind of, like, me and him chilling. And um, that was how the whole studio thing for me really started, and I started taking it very serious at that point. Like... I mean, I always took it serious, but serious as, like, I by myself could actually have a recording career. Because prior to that, it was always with a group or with other people. And I would always depend on the other people to kind of, you know, we would, you know, put it together kind of that way. This was kind of like the first time where, nah, bro, it's you. And if you don't show up, it's not going to happen. So that was kind of like the beginning of it. If you could explain to everyone why Motown, just because... And being the first rapper signed to that label, it doesn't. I mean, it seems like why go with a, you know, and why, why go with a, why with a record label that doesn't do has not doesn't do hip hop? Right. Like what, what 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 was happening? I guess to, for listeners, what was happening at the time in the music industry that has said to you, all right, yeah, Motown is the place. I'm gonna tell be. you what it was. Um, and in hindsight, I may have made a wrong choice. Capitol Records. At the time, I had an attorney. Uh, Ted Nussbaum. I don't even know if Ted is still alive. Shout to you, Ted. I was trying to get a record deal. My partner, Commissioner Gordon, 
um, accolades. Google them. Um, we're both from the Bronx. And um, we, he was in the group Touch. And they had an independent record through Supertronics that was a huge club hit uh, without you. So he had his own production and performance accolades. He knew people from uh, from me writing songs for people and writing. Excuse me, I knew people, and we said, "Well, how can we? Well, let's figure out this demo and see what we're going to do." At the time, major label hip hop wasn't really popular. It was really indie hip hop that was, you know, Select Records, Next Plateau, uh, Sleeping Bag, uh, you know, all these little Sugar Hill, Enjoy, and. Um, we had started to do our shopping process. Select records, shout to Fred Maneo, Kid and Play, MOP, Red Hot Love Atone. Uh, he was all the way in. Kid and Play, Chub Rock, Rich Nice, let's do it. I love the record. Had a song called Desperado. Produced it in the bedroom. Crazy record. Performed it all over. I mean, I literally did shows almost all over the, the Northeast before I even signed. Fred was in. I'm in. Let's go. Let's go. I said, okay, cool. Let me think about it. Blah, blah, blah. We went and took meetings with other people. Capitol Records didn't want to sign me as an artist, but they wanted me to write for their artists. And this is my first lesson in the music business. They, they played me the MC Hammer demo. They played me Mellow Man Ace. And they played me another guy. I can't think of his name. And they wanted me to write for them. And Mellow Man Ace to me was okay. At the time, I didn't really understand West Coast or specifically Bay Area culture. And I thought the MC Hammer demo was the worst thing I'd ever heard at the time. And I just laughed. I was like, oh, my gosh, I would never do this. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 ha. And so I passed on that. And we shopped more. And I was insulted that Capital wanted my, they wanted my writing talent, but they didn't want me. I was insulted. Uh, we shopped more, we shopped more. Motown came about. Timmy Regisford was a friend of uh, Gordon's commish um, from the club world. And he was just like, let's listen to these demos. And he was like, these records are, are great. What, what are you doing? I, like, I want to do a deal. So we shopped to several different places. The best deal on the table was Motown because they was going to give us a production deal. Every, every place else was an artist deal. I didn't want an artist deal because I'm producing every. We are producing everything, so I'm going to be an artist, but I'm producing everything, and I have aspirations of more artists. Now the business starts to kick in, the business mind. Well, if I have a production company, if this rap thing don't work out, I got a production company, and I can still produce because I'm producing everything. Um, and that was kind of the mindset. I said, let's do the last rounds. We went back and met with everybody again after we had our first office. I met with Fred. Fred said, What's, what can Motown give you that I can't? And I said, Fred, I'll be honest with you. Money. How much money you got, Fred? Are you going to put the bread up? If you're going to put the money up, then we can do it today. He couldn't match the offer. I said, Fred, I can't do it. As much as I would like to. But Fred had a clear vision about hip-hop. In hindsight, I should have did the deal with Fred because Fred was ready to run. He, was, he had history in hip-hop. He knew the record. He, 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 he was a shrewd businessman, but he knew the climate. Motown was just like, hey, we like what you're doing. This is something cool. We, we need to get into the rap game. Yeah, 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 let's come on. Yeah, 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 what, yeah. 
And I was just like, they seem excited. They go give me a production deal. I got an office. They gave me an office. I'm like, whoa, whoa, I got an office? We doing it here. And that's what made me do it with Motown, more so on the business side than them than their uh, history in the culture of hip-hop. Because at the time, not knowing the business to the extent that I know it now, I just felt like if the music is good, the music is good. It doesn't matter where it's at. As long as they put it in the store, then we're good. Tidbit with that, I was doing radio and in-stores with The Temptations and El Debarge. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Because they don't know what I do. You know what I mean? And it, it, was a, it was a depressing sort of reality. Like, you're a square peg in a round hole right now. You know? And that was kind of like how I got to Motown. And was, was anything that helped being in Motown? I mean, do you see anything that kind of helped your career that if you signed with some other label, wouldn't? Well, I'll be honest. If I wasn't on Motown, I probably wouldn't be here right now, honestly. Because the Motown experience, I learned, like, I like I got there the last year before, I got there the, 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 the same year, I should say, the same year that Barry Gordy stepped down and Gerald Busby took over was the same year that I got there. Okay. So some of the original Motown employees were there. So, like, some of the product managers, like, I learned what colors to wear, what colors not to wear. I learned what fork to use, what fork not to use. I learned the proper greeting, the, the improper greeting. I learned if you go meet the queen, what do you say to the queen? Like, they, intro- they, they put me through a boot camp of things that was probably the most influential part of my musical career till this day. That when I sit in a room with people, I can pick apart your whole show, your whole, your whole existence of what you do as an artist in 10 minutes because of that training. Those OGs don't even exist anymore. They're all retired. Some have passed on. And the new people don't even understand what color, what color to wear on stage. What do you mean? You can wear anything on stage. No, you can't. You can't wear anything on stage. And, and, and people don't re- realize that. So the Motown tutelage that I got was probably... Not even probably. The Motown tutelage I got was the best thing I could have ever gotten. If I went with Fred Mineo, I probably would have sold a lot of records. I probably would have made some money. But it was Select Records, an independent, a small independent label. And if you look at all of their biggest artists till today, I mean, Chub Rock is my, my friend. But, but Fred wasn't grooming them for life success he was grooming them for record success and there's a difference you know what i mean and record success is great but your record lasts 2.5 seconds what about the other 2.5 seconds of your five seconds of fame and that's what you know and no knock to fred that wasn't his business his business was i'm a record man you got a record i like let's go motown was like we're not worried about the record you you're the talent we're going to show you how to be, and then you go make records and bring back records as the talent. Because Motown really only invested in talent. They didn't invest in... Sometimes they invested in a song, but Motown mostly invested in talent. And that's what really made me sign with them. Speaking of records, you're, uh, you dropped uh, information to raise a nation on, on Motown. Yeah. Um, at the time, what was the purpose of this album for you? And then to take a question, you asked Black Ice when you guys were visiting him. Uh, how would you grade this album when it dropped, and how would you grade it now? Well, this is probably the funniest thing of all time because I wrote that rec- that record was written 
1989, late, late 88, early 89, I wrote that record. It didn't come out till 90. So the content on it was dated. I was completely disgusted with Motown because they held the record. They didn't really know what to do with me because I was political. I had dates on the Public Enemy tour that I had to cancel because they had their Motortown review. And they said, you got to be on the Motortown review. You can't go. I said, but I have confirmed dates with with Chuck D on on the PE tour. They were like, well, you're going to have to do those after this. And it was just like, but that's a hip-hop tour. I'm a hip-hop artist. I'm, this is you want me to go on tour with the boys and the good girls like no disrespect to them those are my friends and yeah we can do dates but that's not my core audience right. you know um they didn't care they were more in the mindset of we have to develop the Motown system and not an outside system so I kind of got stuck not stuck but I had to agree to do it I could have disagreed but in hindsight I know that as a label you need your label to support you and do favors for you when you need favors. So I did a favor for the label. The album itself, there are singles that I like on there that I think, like we played some single. DJ Scratch played something the other day at Soul in the Horn, which blew my mind. I was, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, it's, it's weird for me to hear the record that actually was released because all of the demos from that record smash the actual recording they they had me re-record the record so the original demos that we turned in the eight track demos were incredible the 24 track re-recordings of the demos was subpar to me um because it didn't have the same flair it didn't feel the same it wasn't as foundationally hip-hop as I wanted it to be. It was kind of like too polished. Very, very polished for like a Motown radio sound. I honestly don't know how I would rate it at the time when it came out. I hated it because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. It was completely different from what I originally recorded. Um, Now, in hindsight, looking back at it, the singles that I like from it But as an overall album, I still like my demos. We're actually having conversation now. Funny, me and Commissioner talking about releasing an anniversary project of my first album, just the demos, just the demos. And then I'm going to, me and him are going to narrate between what was going on at the time. I mean, I was talking about Oliver North. I was talking about like a lot of political primetime things that, you know, if you're talking about politics, your record has to be timely. If it comes out after the fact, it's almost like if, if I talk about George Bush in a record right now, it's just like, George Bush, you, you're two presidents late, dog. Like, what you talking about? Like, what do you mean, George? George Bush doesn't like black people. Um, did you watch this on YouTube? Like, what are you talking about? This is old news, bro. So that's kind of how I felt when they released my record. I even said, let me re-record some new stuff because th- this is old. And they were like, it's old to you, but the world doesn't know it yet. And da 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 And I was like, uh, Oliver North did not happen in 1990. We're releasing my record in 1990 talking about Oliver North. Oliver North did not happen in 1990. So I'm late. I'm slow to the draw. And it was what it was. You know, shout to Motown still. 
best experience ever for me as an artist. I, I still wouldn't trade it. The people there were fantastic. Gerald Busby became a mentor, sat me down and gave me a strong tutelage of the music business. Um, Beverly Lias, uh, uh, God bless her, God bless the dead. Uh, 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 Sandy Jones, um, so many great Motown people. You know, uh, 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 Daryl Jones, who was a big A&R now, but Daryl Jones was an intern when I was a rapper there. And Daryl Jones would take me around L.A. to different studios where you want to go, what you want to do. And that was we created a great relationship. And then years later, Daryl and I ended up heading up the A&R department at Sony. You know, so relationships were made and, you know, uh, uh, fantastic thing for me with Motown. When, when the Motown relationship ended... Was there ever a moment for you to say, or it doesn't sound like there was, but was there ever a moment to be like, all right, maybe this is not me. Maybe the music industry is not for me. I mean, did you ever have to think of a new career path, or was that not even in the books? You know what's so funny you say that? I just had this conversation with someone last night, an artist that I'm working with actually named Lexa Coy out of California, and she asked me, she said, what happens when... no matter what you do, you can't catch steam. And I told her, I said, you know, unfortunately, that's the plight of the music business and every artist. I have friends, I don't want to say any names, I have friends that were the top of the top. And everyone was like, I love you, I love you, you're amazing. And then the next record no one cared and people were like boo get out of here you corny you whack boo bah and they tried to commit suicide oh, wow. and I was explaining to her people are cruel the world is cruel and I told her about Michael Jackson you know there was a time when Mike was a child star and when he came out of being a kid and was in the puberty and became like an adult Someone had met him and was like, oh, you're Michael Jackson. Oh, you was the little cute kid star. What happened? You're not so cute anymore. And that is the meanest, harshest thing you could say to someone like, you used to be cute. Right. And now you're not cute. I used to like you. Now I don't like, like, the nerve. And I said, this business is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the thin skin. And so when I... When I left, when me and Motown separated, we, we parted ways, it was tough because I was no longer a Motown recording artist. And I kind of, some of my friends was like, dog, you good. Like, man, you out of that. You good. Now you can really go and get it going. But unfortunately, the music business has a mindset of, if you're if you if you're not with a label anymore, the milk must be spoiled. So something is wrong. Right. And meanwhile, nothing was wrong. It was just kind of like they were in the mindset of, we can't do anything for you. Like, we don't understand this. You know, what 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 do you want us to do? And um, I was kind of happy to be out, but now for the first time in a long time. I had no record company. And at that point, I had already built up this great marketing outlet. Because like I said, I had my own office. And so I got across the country, I got P. 
people in every city that make phone calls to radio, that, you know, come to the clubs. And so I got this great network. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Well, while I'm figuring it out, I had a lot of friends who had record deals who were in turmoil and couldn't fix themselves. And it's like, Rich Nice, how, how, how did you do it? And I started consulting friends. Well, I started giving friends advice. And then one day somebody said, oh, you're a consultant. And I was like, no, I just give my friends advice. It was like, yeah, that's a consultant. And I was like, no, 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 no. I know what a consultant is, stoop. I'm saying I'm not a consultant. I'm just giving my friends advice. I'm not charging them money. I, and it was like, well, you could charge money. And I was like, you think? And so the next thing you know, people started paying me money to talk to them. And I would have these long conversations on the phone of what to, telling them what to do. And they would pay me money. And it was the most bizarre thing ever because it was like, you do know that I will tell you what to do for free. Like, I'm not even tripping like that. Like, I'm just giving you advice. Take it or leave it. And it became a business for me. And um, I started working with Tone, Red Hot Lover Tone. He was signed to, of all places, Select Records. So I already knew Fred Maneo. It was an easy fit. Hey, Fred. Oh, Rich Nice. What's going on? I'm working with Tone. Oh, man, that's good. You're a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Good. It's going to be great. And we put together a very great album. MOP was on it. Biggie was on it. Um, um, Organized Confusion. Don Barron. Production from a bunch of people. Trackmaster Production. And that was kind of my beginning of officially being behind-the-scenes person. Prior to that, I was more advice, friendship. People might throw me a couple dollars, but I wasn't looking for it at that point. And Tone was like, yo, you might as well manage me, yo. And I was like, Tone, I'm not a manager, bro. Like, I, I, you, I mean, I, I manage myself this whole... He said, that's what I'm saying. He says, you got yourself a production deal. You got yourself on two tours. You got yourself on li- in Living Color. You got yourself... Like, dog, you're a manager. And I was like, if you say so. Like, I don't think I'm a manager. I think I'm just a hustler. Like, I'm trying to make it happen. But, okay, cool. Started managing Tone, and we started rocking. You mentioned Trackmasters. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that as a production company? How did it begin? What was the company's purpose when it first started out? And then what was your exact job while you were there? Well, in the beginning with Trackmasters, they were just friends. It was uh, Frank Nitty, Al Richburg, Polk, and Tone. I, I kind of was like Billy Preston of the of the Beatles. I was like the the fifth, the, the, you know, the fifth Beatle. I was like the fifth trackmaster. <laughs> and I would come from the Bronx and ride the train all the way out to Brooklyn and go to their sessions in, in Alex Richburg's house. And you know, because I had an unbiased opinion. And unfortunately, I'm the person that tells the truth in the room. So if everyone says this record is hot, this record is hot. If I don't think it's hot. I am not going to chime in because everybody else said it's hot. I'm going to say, well, I think it could be better. And actually, I don't like it. And for that purpose, they loved me. They was like, I love this guy because he tells the truth. Started hanging out more and more and more and more and just being around. And then I was already working with Tone. So it was like, well, that's Tone's homie. And I would go from the Bronx out to Brooklyn almost every day. And that, that began my relationship with Trackmasters. And then, um, God bless the dead, Heavy D. Damn, a lot of my friends have passed away. God bless the dead, Heavy D. Um, came to Tone and said, I got a project I want you to do with me. But the artists, they're not signed. There's no deal for them. 
But Andre Harrell told me once I get the project right, he would give me a budget. But I had to deliver it first. This group was so for real. This is the project that broke up Trackmasters because there was no paperwork. It was a handshake deal between Tone and Heavy D. Now, I knew Hev from Uptown because they used my drum machine for their first album. Um, shout to Eddie F and the whole crew. So I believed Hev because I had no reason to not believe Hev. Right. Anything that Hev said, it was always his word was his bond. It was like, all right, cool. Alex Richburg being a astute businessman, family man, wife and kids, he was like, I can't feed my kids with a handshake. I need an agreement. I can't, I'm not doing it. And he just wasn't into it. And I could totally understand because, you know, you got mouths to feed. You can't be like, we're going to do a whole album on a handshake. Right. Um, but Tone at the time had no kids. Polk at the time had no kids. Rich Nice, no kids. Come on, Hev, let's do it. So we did the Soul For Real record, and it blew up. And that was the beginning of the new Trackmasters. And uh, from that point on, it was me, Polk, and Tone. And we were rocking and rolling. And then Tone knew Steve. Him and Stout, him and Stout had, were friends. Stout was doing A&R at RCA at the time. And then Stout started coming around. And it was 1995 in Chung King Studio B Room that we sat together, the four of us, and said, we are going to start this production company. And it was like, what's the name? What's the name? Stout said, we need a name. We need a name. You know Rich Nice? We need a name. <laughs> and I said, that's my Steve Stout. You know Rich Nice? We need a name. And I was like, I ain't trying to be funny, but why don't we just use Trackmasters? Because the original Trackmasters was spelled T-R-A-K-M-A-S-T-E-R-Z. Right. So it was spelled kind of like, like hip-hop-ish. I said, let's spell it Queen's English. Everything correct. Steve was like, that's dope. There's already a bunch of credits in that name already. So why are we going to try and reinvent the wheel? And we just became Trackmasters. Polk did the logo, drew the logo, and from there it was just kind of like the rest was history, as they say. We we started mashing. I mean, that's why I said we, we, we did studio sometime seven days straight, you know. No go home. Go home. Ain't nobody going home. We here. Wash your armpits in the bathroom and get back to work. And that's how we started Trackmasters. Did you know at the time, I mean, um, when you're doing these albums, like how big of an impact they will they would have on the industry at the time or is that something that you have to wait i don't know five years down the line to figure it out or was it just is it just quickly just letting you know like you know once it's out some stuff we kind of was in the studio like oh we're gonna kill these motherfuckers with this and then other songs we were like i have no idea if this is gonna even work because we weren't the darlings of the industry in the beginning. You know, we were kind of like the un not even kind of, we were the underdogs. You know, we were the guys that, oh, those guys. Because think about it. Steve came from RCA as an A&R. His, his, at the time, his biggest signing was Bass Blaster. You know what I mean? Um, I 
was an artist who was on Motown, no longer on Motown. Mind you, I had credits at the time. I had great credits. Me and Commish, me and Commissioner Gordon, we would remix and do overdubs with Timmy Regisford on a ton of records. So we had Stacey Lattisaw, Diana Ross, the guy. We had all kind of, you know, a, a, a general public, all kind of records we had at the time, you know, working with great musicians and great stuff, you know, uh, uh, MC Light remixes and all this stuff. But that was on that side. And then it was the early Trackmaster stuff. So there was nothing current that we could put our finger on and say, we pop in. So we just had to, it was just us. I mean, we literally lived in Chung King studio. Shout to John King. I mean, we literally lived there. And that was pretty much where we made our, our claim. Our claim to fame was in Chung King studios. What do you think was the biggest... What, what do you think album, which album that Trackmasters did, or maybe albums had the biggest impact on the industry And when you look back at it? Well, I don't think it was albums. It was singles in the beginning. In the beginning, it was singles like, and this was still early Trackmaster days, but I was still there. This was like Coogee uh, Rap, uh, Ill Street Blues. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, On The Run, you know, and that came out of a battle. That came out of Polk and Frank Nitti battling because it was, you know, you talking about four producers, five producers in a room, and it's a remix. And it's just kind of like, okay, the best beat we're going to use. And that's when you would see the thinking caps come on and it'd be like everybody in headphones and it's maniac moments. And it's just like, oh, my goodness. And... I, I've always been a great... I, I vocal a lot of artists. My, my thing has always been vocal production. And Coogee Rap at the time was like... Still is, but a very serious guy. Like, not a lot of jokes, you know, come to the studio, you know. Like, this is Coogee Rap. This guy, like, you could get punched in your face in the studio. Like, for real. And we're at Power Play Studios in, in Queens. And it's time to vocal Coogee Rap for Ill Street Blues. And... While he's writing his rap, you know, everybody leaves. So it's Rich Nice, the engineer, and Koji Rap. He spits his verse. I'm looking on the front stems, now rack of the yang, kicking the can, picking the band, picking the... I'm like, vocal booth, vocal booth right now. Go, go, go. That's incredible. He goes to the vocal booth. He cuts the vocal. I said, you got the second verse? He goes, no, I got to write it. Okay, cool. He comes back out. He, this is the days of writing in the studio. He's writing the second verse, and he comes back with a completely different style. I'm like, what are you doing? He was like, it's the second verse. I'm like, nah, dog, you can't change the second style, the second verse. The engineer looks at me like, you about to get smacked up in the studio because you're trying to tell Coogee Rap how to rap. And I'm like, nah, dog, trust me. That first style is so incredible. You got to make the second verse with that same, look at the band, look at the band, look at the band, look at the band, that same style. And he was like, yeah? You sure it's not going to be repetitious and corny? I said, trust me. He said, okay. Told the engineer, play the beat loud, blah, blah, blah. And he's writing, 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 writing. He's like, I'm ready. Goes in the booth, kicks the second verse. He comes out. Tone comes. Yo, that's crazy. Frank Nitty walks in. Yo, that's incredible. G-Rap is like, your man. Your man the one. Your man the one that told me to flip, flip it that way. He's like, this is crazy, blah, blah, blah. When that song, when Ill Street Blues came, not even that. When the, when, when, when the people at Cold Chillin' Records heard Ill Street Blues, they call Tone, y'all some geniuses. Y'all some geniuses. This is incredible. 
And that Cool G rap record is what made everybody look at us differently at that point on. Because it was like, Ill Street Blues? Woo! And then the flip side was On The Run. And Polk, so mad, was like, watch this. And came back. He was in another room and came back in the room with that beat. And I was just like, yo, what the hell was going on in the other room? And he was like, this beat. And then G-Rapped it On The Run. So that G-Rap was one of the things that made people look at us differently. Like, oh, wait a minute. You guys... You guys are serious. And that's when the albums and the bigger projects and everyone started to come at that point. But prior to that, it was just a lot of um, lower level, local. We were getting money, but not big name artists. And when, when people saw, oh, well, if they can make a hit with Cool G Rap, and we know Cool G Rap probably, you know, um, might not be the easiest guy to produce as far as giving him direction because... He's an established artist. He, he does what he does, and you can't kind of change what he does. They kind of respected that. And that was kind of, for me, I think that was like the turning point of when Trackmaster started like, ooh, and of course the Soul For Real record because it was so many number ones and it was such a big record. And it was just like, and I remember Poketone brought BMWs and somebody came by the studio and was like, yo, there's two ill BMWs outside. Who's those? And I was like, that's theirs. And it was like, that's not their cars. I was like, yeah. He's like, where's yours? I was like, I'm good. I've never been a car person. Right. I'm not a car guy. And it was just like, and then the So For Real record was like a turn where they could say, you can get them to do your album, not just your single. Because we would, we would only get called for singles. Oh, we did a single called Trackmasters. Oh, we did a single called Trackmasters. Now, it was like, we start an album called Trackmasters. So that was kind of the turning point. Nas did uh, his second album. Uh, it was written. Um couple things. What was your role in this? But also, this is coming off of Nas's Illmatic, which everyone, you know, classic album. And has an all-star producer on it. Um, as a company, or yourself, are you supposed, not to sound harsh, but are you supposed to care what, how successful another, this, a person's album is that wasn't done by you guys? I mean, oh, was there any nervousness, I guess, taking on this type of album? Well, I'm going to say this. At the time, of course, there was some, you know, feeling a certain way about not wanting to, um, wanting to live up to expectation. But we also knew, business-wise, Nas' first album didn't sell at the time. Right. So... We didn't have a sales expectation at all. There were no like, damn, we got to make sure we triple platinum. There was no sales expectation. But there was a cultural expectation because Nas meant so much to the culture. And I hate to say that, you know, you know, the culture, you know, I was laughing at something that, you know, Tone and Steve was talking about, you know. But um, we were more concerned with making a great record with him that no one could refute. And we got slack. People was like, oh, y'all about to ruin Nas' career. Oh, who y'all think y'all are? Because, you know, let's keep it 100. We could have got anyone to sing on I Rule the World. We could have got Mary J. Blige. She was right there, eager and ready to go. But we didn't do that. We said, no, no, no. We're going to keep it hip-hop. We're going to put a rapper to sing on the song. Let's get Lauren. Lauren's a hip-hop artist. Lauren is Lauren will hip-hop you down on any given Sunday, so don't play yourself. And we said, okay. And then I remember me and Steve was driving up. Actually, I was driving Steve's car up uh, 
up Ma- up Madison Avenue, his white Lexus, whew, back in the days. And I'm driving his Lexus up Madison Avenue, and I'm driving like a Bronx drug dealer. That's how I'm driving. Leaned all the way back, leaning to the side, wilding. I'm a young kid, wilding. Steve is in the passenger seat with a bottle of champagne, drinking it to the head. And we listening to Nas records, and we going through the records. He says, tell me that we go too far with this. I know you. I know you. You're brutal when it comes to this type of stuff. Did we go too far? Because did we go too far? I'm listening to If I Rule the World, and I'm like, nah, we got to tweak the chorus a little bit because some of the words are a little too. In the beginning, it was super, 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 like, inspirational. And not that we didn't want it to be. We just knew that that could create a problem for Nas' street presence. You know, it was like, okay. And we tweaked it, and... I was happy, Tone was happy, Polk was happy, Steve was happy, and more importantly, Nas was happy. Off to the races we went and didn't care who said what. They tore, look, mind you, they tore us to shreds. They tore Trackmaster to shreds. Oh, they're about to ruin Nas' career. Next thing you know, he was platinum. It was like, Nas is platinum? Yeah, Nas is platinum. It was like, maybe those records weren't bad. And there it was. Jack Masters also did They Don't Care About Us, yeah. uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. And I know that's a huge, I feel like that's a huge importance to you because of the influence Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 had on yeah. you. Um, did you meet him? Yes. What was that like? Um, Mike was an interesting person because, you know, I, I, I've never fanned out on anybody. I didn't fan out on Mike, to be honest with you. Um, I was more uh, intrigued, I guess because I was a Motown artist, so I just felt like we had something in common, and I knew his brother Jackie. Jackie was my big homie. When I got the Motown records, Jackie showed me around. Jackie gave me the tour of Motown records, so it was like, that's a great introduction to the label. Jackie Jackson yeah. introduces you to the, to the employees at Motown. And um, so when I met Mike, I was just like, oh, yeah, I, met, I know I know Jackie, man. Jackie, you're cool. And blah, 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 blah. We were talking. And um, me and Jermaine's assistant was really cool because she worked at Motown. And so I was kind of in, in the family, but not in the family, so to speak. Like, I knew people, but I didn't really, I wasn't really, you know, I was on the Christmas list, so to speak. But um, with Mike, I was just more intrigued about his creative process because he was so dope yeah. and got a chance to work with so many dope people. So it was more that. And, you know, uh, a tone was mad at me because I, I, I was like, yo, we are not sending Michael Jackson drum machine hand claps, drum machine finger snaps. Like I made a, I made like it was we had to set up microphones and do live hand claps, live finger snaps, live sound effects, all that stuff, because I'm like, this is Michael Jackson. We're not drum machining him. And I had left my bag in the studio, and uh, we had all went to go di- to go to dinner, and then we left. Everyone left, and I was like, "Let me go get back, go back and get my bag." And when I came back to get my bag out the lounge, I looked in the room, and in the control room was Michael Jackson, and I'm like, "No, this was way, way late." So it was just him and the engineer, and I was like, "Should I go in there?" 
That's MJ, baby. I'm going in. <laughs> and I went in, met, and talked. He was doing his little dance. I was trying not to laugh because I know I'd get fired by my boss if I'd laugh. But it was probably one of the most intense scenarios for me as far as an artist in the studio. It was super cool. Obviously, I mean, that song, when it came out, it, had, it got pushed back in the States because of the controversial lyrics. Um, was that a concern for Trackmasters in terms of... Nah, we was like, Trackmasters was the, all the rebels. Like, we the rebels of producers. Like, we didn't care because no one counted us in. No one counted us in. They all counted us out. Think about it. We're like the degenerate music industry guys that everyone forgot about. We formed a band and started kicking ass. Steve, Rich Nice, Polk, Tone. We, we got together and was like, yo. And we, and we, and we flew just below the radar. And by the time you figured out what was going on, Trackmasters, it was too late. So you've been credited as helping to define the sound of East Coast hip-hop resurgent, as well as reinventing the sound of the South by being an A&R for dis- disturbing the peace. Do you see yourself that this way? And then also, how different are the sounds? And then also, as an A&R, how do you approach that with these two different sounds? You know what? Um... I am a hip-hop snob. Let me start off by saying that. And that's because I know the foundation of hip-hop. I saw Park Jams. So one thing that they could never out-hip-hop me, planet Earth, they could never out-hip-hop me. Never. Because I saw it from the foundation. I know what the energy is that makes it move. My OGs are real guys in the hip-hop scenario. Grand Mixer DXT. Uh, Raheem Furious 5 uh, uh, DJ Baron DJ Breakout These are my OGs That I've studied and watched on my grow up So um, When I got to Atlanta Shout to Shaka Zulu Who brought me through, Luda's manager I got to witness the creation Of the Of the southern hip hop staple with Skinny Thug, shout to Scarface when he started, because Scarface was the president of Def Jam South. And I got to watch that as a real hip hop guy from the Bronx, and I took that hip hop Bronx mentality down to Atlanta and put that energy around them. Now, I can't take credit for what Scarface did because he's a guy of many magnitudes. Salute to him. I love what he's done all the time. Um, but to be in those circles and for people to ask my opinion and for me to help direct things and mold certain mindsets was very important for what was going on. And, you know, even guys like Jeff Dixon, who's, you know, New York guy, managed Brand Nubian, managed a lot of New York great artists, you know, went to down to Atlanta, Shaka's brother, and, and, and managed Ludacris, and, you know, that was our think tank. Our think tank was very, very hip-hop, and very, very New York hip-hop, but not to the point where we became snooty about, well, if you don't do it this way, you know, and for me, I turned my New York off when I went to Atlanta, you know, because the, when, at that time, Atlanta, they call us the yo boys because New York is like, yo, 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 yo. So the guys in Atlanta call us the yo boys. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to be a yo boy. I'm not going to be a yo boy because that doesn't define who I am as a musician and as a creative. So I turned to I would, my conversation for five years. People said, where are you from? I can't tell. You have no accent. You have no I don't I don't know. I don't I can't tell. It was just kind of weird. You know what I mean? 
as far as the whole Southern thing, it was just, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to have, you know, I feel like the, 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 I feel like the hip-hop Forrest Gump. <laughs> where, where anything important that in hip-hop happened, I was a fly on the wall. I was kind of there or close by. You know what I mean? So salute to everybody, man, that kind of helped me along that way. That was like open arms to me. And my thing is, if you open the door, I'll show you what I can do. I don't want you to, I, I walk in with no preconceived notions of what you think I am, but I can walk, I'm a chameleon. I can walk into any scenario and fix it because that's how, I'm the cleanup man. I'm the cleanup man. When it's all broke, I walk in and clean it. And that's kind of how that whole Southern Atlanta thing came to play because they needed somebody to come in and with no ego, but knew how to do it and knew how to work with talent more importantly and treat talent with respect and treat talent with how they should be treated and get the best performance out of the talent. And that's my specialty. And that's what made all of my, um, my excursions business-wise in Atlanta and the South go well because my thing is to make the artist the best artist they can be. It ain't really about me at that point. I want to ask you about your A&R hat. Uh, you do the A&R room with three yes. in the morning. Um, and you, an artist goes up to you and he wants to be, or she wants to be big and you, she... He or she might say, I want to sound like this name, your big artist at the time. Um, as an A&R person, are you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for someone that's supposed to be that next person because you want to sell those records? Or, I mean, are you looking for flow? Are you looking for content? All the above, you know. What do you, what do you go for? It, it, it honestly depends on... I, I have either conveniently or not conveniently removed myself from the scenario to where um, I, I, I am very, very capable of distinguishing what I like personally and what will sell commercially. And I don't cross the lines. So, personally, there's a laundry list of what I listen to and what I love. Oh, I swear by this. Professionally, I understand I can't hold Little Yachty. And this is not a knock on Little Yachty. I can't hold Little Yachty to the same criteria that I hold Rakim to. Because Rakim is a different guy. And Little Yachty's a different guy. And Rakim don't want to be Little Yachty. And Little Yachty don't want to be Rakim. So if I approach Little Yachty and treat him like Rakim, he's going to be like, it's never going to be good enough. Nah, nah, boat, go back in the booth, man. It ain't right. And he's going to say, why does this guy keep on sending me back? Because I'm never going to be Rakim because I don't want to be Rakim. So I had to learn that in A&R. In A&R, the things that I tell people is you have to, you have to recognize the average from the great and the great from the exceptional. And that's the key to A&R. And you have to do it instantly. So I have to be able to listen and go, this is average, which means it can still work, but it's average. This is great, good or great, which means it's above average. And this is exceptional, meaning like you're Prince, you're Michael, you're Adele, you're Jennifer Hudson, you're, you know what I'm saying? You're, 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 you're something, you know? And... If you do that, then I think you will never have that issue. You will always go, well, this is average. This is what's the status quo. 
Status quo is status quo. It is what it is. Because you have to understand that everything isn't going to be Jay-Z, Nas, Michael Jackson, Kendrick Lamar, Drake. It's, everything's not going to be that. You know, and the moment you understand that as an A&R, the success you have will be unlimited. You're someone that obviously is not in this just because, I mean, just because you're, you, this, because rap is popular. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you, you say sometimes about some artists or some people that if, rap, if like country music was popular still, they would be country musicians versus, you know. Um, so I want to ask you about the culture. Um, commercially, the MC is the representative of the culture of hip hop. But if commercialization, funding, whatever, wasn't a factor for you, which element would you want to be the the, the representation of hip hop culture to the masses? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you, and and most people don't know this, and it's it's kind of like the hidden secret. The DJ has, is, and will always be the main focus of the hip-hop culture. Even when Kendrick Lamar wins the Grammy, even when Drake wins, because what happens is um, you will never hear a Drake song without a DJ. You will never hear a Kendrick Lamar song without a DJ. So the DJs are still the hidden heroes of the hip-hop culture from the foundation. So it's always going to be that. Of course commercialization, record companies, they want to promote who they can promote because their pimp game is strong. And I get it because it's business. It's big business. Um, So I understand that. But it's always going to be the DJ. And now more than ever before, the DJ has made a resurgence to the forefront because they pushed them in the back, but to the forefront to where you go, man, maybe it is the DJ. And as long as you get that question mark of maybe it is the DJ then that's what it is, you know, because let's be very honest, especially now, and this is no shot at any hip hop from right now. We no longer really need lyric sheets to go through the content of the songs of today because their lyrics aren't in that deep of a fashion. Their lyrics are more of a escapism. You know, I've worked this job from nine to five. I'm done. I just want to have a little whatever I have and zone out my mind. And that's kind of where we are right now. Right. You have the guys like Kendrick who will say things and J. Cole and the Osmond Benjamins and uh, uh, Sean Smith. There's a lot of guys out here now, new guys, with great lyrical abilities that are stepping up and letting you know that lyrics aren't dead. But for the most part, the status quo of radio music is escapism because the world is in a weird place and people want to escape. So as an A&R, you have to really be very content, uh, conscious of that. You know, you can't give a baby a hamburger. It, it don't work that way. You know, it just doesn't. And, you know, as a, as a hip-hop snob... I had to learn that the hard way, you know, because I turned, I passed on so many artists that they're just like, yo, and then later on they blew up and it was like, I said, yeah, but his lyrical content was subpar and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, well, you know what? Let's just go with what feels good. Let's forget about the next Eminem or the next Jay-Z or the next whoever, whoever, you know? And I was like, okay, no problem. You know, there's a million songs I can grab that'll be like the singles of what will turn up. You know, but I, I, I just think that as an A&R person, my criteria first is to look for the exceptional 
but I'll accept the great, the good, and the average. But I'm looking for the exceptional. That's what I'm looking for. I have to cut this short because I have to pick up my too. daughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Rich Nice, it's really been an honor to uh, talk Absolute to you today. Pleasure, on the man. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I think, um, man, I didn't know what to expect because, you know, I honestly avoid a lot of interviews. I don't, you know, and this is my first interview for 2018. Oh, wow. And Thank I'm probably going to start doing a whole lot. Grammy week is coming, and I got about a whole slew of Grammy interviews to do. We got some Grammy um, events coming up that we're going to do with um, RAD. I want to mention this recording artists against drunk drivers. Something very important now. People are losing their lives so many different ways. But one of the ways that we're doing it to ourselves is through drunk driving. And this event we're going to do on the 24th is very important. Lexicoy is performing. Uh, Osmond Benjamin's performing. A ton of musicians. It's going to be great. Check my social media. It's going to be fantastic. But I really want people to support this because that's what it's about. You know. Get up in pain. Get on the dance floor. It's time that I settle the score. On rappers who be fronting, talking about nothing. Slowing down the party, well, I'ma keep it pumping. So many rappers come to the show and start yapping. With third class rhymes and offbeat hand clapping. The crowd's churning, in fact, you're burning. To see a brother get on the mic and start serving. It ain't cost real, proving I'm for real. Making you suckers get on your knees and kneel. For something that you're lacking, feeling like you're cracking. So power is how I keep them clapping. Some through my lyrics, some through my music. Find the one that fits you and use it, no matter what it is, just do your thing, as long as it's funky, you can swing, just keep up the tempo, don't you let go of this beat, cause then it might slow down, this sound coming live from uptown, complete with Ron Joe, what's the compound? Yeah, 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 the feeling, yeah, 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 Why? Cause I said so. All the ladies say ow and the fellas say ho. Homeboy grab a cutie. That one with the big fat face and snare that's kicking and pumping. Keeping the party jumping. Everybody wanna get with it. We won't admit it. And at the end of the night, they're in it to win it. But it's only a party. So get up and move your body. And just show no shame. Because fun is the name of the game. Move your thing. Don't worry about nothing. I know you came to party. Stop fucking. Shake to the rhythm. Let it move you. Don't fight the feeling. I'm here to groove you. Big or small. Come one, come all. Get up and get off the wall. Put the pieces together and you get the meaning of the rhythm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah
Rich, I must admit, you came off. Ah, show that. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.